puts you in a place, and then I got to get up here and say something. Uh, would you pray with me and ask that the Lord would uh, use this broken vessel to say something of value? And hopefully that value is what he says in his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the kind of God that we can wait on, that we can trust, that we can hope in, and we pray that you would build us up in that hope, build us up in that trust as we turn to your word this morning, not the words of a preacher, uh, not the words of a man. Uh, may we open our, our Bibles now, uh, and as we do that, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Give us the grace, Father, to live it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue moving through the book of Numbers, really it's a book about following God. I mean, what book in the Bible isn't about following God? But you've got this people group rescued from Egypt, pulled out of darkness, pulled out of slavery, but they're not home yet, as that book that I gave away earlier says. Well, if you're out of slavery but you're not home yet, where are you? You're in a wilderness journey. You're in the in-between area of traversing. You're, you're, you're better than you were. You, you're not a slave anymore, but you're not home yet. You're not perfect. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a time of growth. And so what God is uh, doing in the book of Numbers is using his leadership of the people of Israel in that time as an example for you to make it home, to make it all the way, to survive this wilderness that is the Christian life, that is the, the fight of the faith. And we need to learn the lessons well because we'll fall into the same traps if we don't. The Apostle Paul made that clear. These are set here as examples for us. We learn not because we're better than the Israelites. We learn because we are the Israelites. And the temptations are the same. The battle is the same. And as you look at this, what I'm, what I'm uh, just so jacked about is that God doesn't lead by just giving commands. Do this, don't do that. He uses the, their story to help you understand how to follow those commands. Now think about that as a parent or as an employer or as a professor, a teacher, anywhere you exercise leadership. It is good leadership to not just tell the people what the expectations are, but to give them help as to meet those expectations, right? And God doesn't just roll out commands, Hey, here's the promised land. Here's what you need to do. See you later. But he shows you how to follow him. And if we don't do it carefully, we can fall off the road. So would you join me in the book of Numbers, still early in the Old Testament, fourth book in the Bible. And we find ourselves right here in chapter 13. We're going to cover 13 and 14. There's a lot of ground, so if I start talking a little quick sometimes, I'll try to slow myself, but I, I do want to make sure that we uh, cover what we need to cover. We won't read every single line of these two chapters, but we will read a good portion of it. Some of it I'll summarize, but please do have your copy of the Word open as we look at God's leadership to make it through the wilderness journey. And what we see right here is we've come out of this sort of back and forth where they complain about food, they complain about Moses, and God deals with them and keeps getting them back on track to where they need to be. And now they're going to go into the land to spy it out, to check it out, because the goal is to conquer the land and take over this land that God has promised his people. So he pulls them out of Egypt, tells them, I'm going to get you to this land. It's going to be a great land. You're going to be a great people. 
but you've got to follow me there. And as they get to the edge and they, they send in spies to check it out, they're getting ready to take it over. They're getting ready to get a hold of that promise that God had given to them. And what they're going to do is send in some spies. God gives them the marching orders to do it, but we very quickly see that God's orders always require faith. And when that's the missing ingredient, things go off the rails. It says in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, one, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all the men who were heads of the people of Israel. How many tribes? Twelve tribes. So how many spies? Twelve spies. One spy per tribe. And you can see there the list of the names. Uh, I know when you're reading through the Bible, you're like, oh, these lists, I've got to read through them. But it's real people, real time. They actually had a roll call, you know. Um, and it smacks of that reality that we're talking about real life people here. This is history. And then in verse 17, it says, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see. Your job is to go see. This is recon mission right now, right? To gather information. What are they supposed to see? It says that they're supposed to see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell is in good is that they dwell in is good or bad, verse 19, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. And he ends with this, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Now you might think like, what kind of recon mission, what action movie have, have I ever seen? where the goal was to get in there, snap your pictures of the POWs, where they're keeping them, and bring back some of them grapes, man. You're like, what, what's going on there? Well, the purpose is to show uh, how, much, how fruitful the land is in contrast with this wilderness experience where they're dependent on bread. If they didn't complain, they wouldn't have gotten the quail. They don't have meat. There's just bread out there every morning. And uh, they are yearning for vegetables and fruit and honey and milk, right? Milk meaning cattle galore. And so he's like, bring back some proof of that. It's not bring back a snack, right? It's, it's bring back some proof that this land is flowing with milk and honey and there's vegetation and all of that. But here's what I want you to notice here, and I, th I think it's, it's important. It's, I think, easy to miss when you see all the text jumbled together there. But when Moses sends them to spy... He's telling them to notice two things, the land and the people, the land and the cities, the land and the people. He goes back and forth between the geographical situation and the challenge of getting that situation. The challenge is the people. They're not going to roll over. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, have all our grapes, right? So he's like, check out the land, how beautiful it is. Is it good or is it bad? He knows the answer. God's not sending them to a bad land, but he's like, check it out. Is it a good land or is it a bad land? Do they have lots of food or a little bit of food? Is there lots of trees and vegetation or is there a little bit of it? He's also asking them, check out the people. Are they like in tents or are they in fortified cities? Do they walk around with sticks or do they have swords and spears, right? Are they strong people or weak people? He's setting them up to see how awesome the land is 
but how awesome the challenge also is. And he goes back and forth, check out the people, check out the land, check out the people, check out the land, right back and forth in that paragraph. So as the people go in, the spies go in, they're going to see a juxtaposition, putting two things next to each other, of the promise, wow, great promise, and the people, whoa, tough, that's tough, that's a challenge. They're really big. They're scary. So they're going to get excited about the promise. There's going to be something else that they uh, come away with with the people. But notice how the whole thing ends. Be of good courage. He knows it's going to be disappointing. He knows it's going to be difficult. And that's why he wants them to bring back fruit of the land. He wants them to have a visual of how awesome the land is so that they can be of good courage to tackle the challenge. Yes, it's going to be hard, but think about how awesome the land is. That's why when I gave that book away, I'm not trying to continue to promote a book, but if there's lots of books like that that I've given away that talk about if we don't hold to a, a firm hope of what it's like past this life now, we'll fall in love with the wilderness and we won't care what that looks like. But we, pastors, teachers, theologians, have done the church a disservice by not clearly teaching what's waiting for us. We don't have, you know, if you interview the average Christian, it's like, I don't know, we're, we're playing harps, we're invisible, we're floating, we're, I don't know, maybe grandma's there, will my pet be there? If your main thing is whether your pet will be there, it's really hard to get, if, if that's what gets, gets you jacked about the afterlife, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> sure, you know, maybe, I don't know. But that, that's a little lame, you know, that's a little on a scale of one to ten, I wouldn't put that too high of what to get excited about, Right? And so as he's trying to get them excited about it, he knows that they're going to experience a challenge. They're going to see the people, the cities, and they're not weak. They are strong. They're not tiny. They are big. They aren't intense. They are in cities. They are well fortified. They are well armed. But he wants them to, but look at that fruit. Do you want it? Look at those grapes. Do you want it? Well, here's what transpires. As they compare the promise with the problem, you realize that it, the, to look at the promise, regardless of the problem, you need faith. And this is what they lack. And so verse 21, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebohamath. They went up to the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Seshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Again, historical details show you where this was, who these people were. Verse 23, and they came to the valley of Eshkel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole. This is one cluster of grapes and they've got a pole and they're hiking it. So you can imagine, right? This is, this is not like you walk in and you're like, whoa, they must have used GMOs because the strawberries are kind of big. This is like it takes multiple people to carry it big. And it wasn't just the grapes. It, they also brought some pomegranates and figs that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Remember we talked about they're going in to spy the, 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 the promise, the land, and the people. What's the result? What did the spies see? Well, it starts with the good news. The good news is, man, the land is awesome, and we are going to bring back some awesome proof of it. We're going to show people how great this is. But then it goes to the bad news. It says, at the end of 40 days, in verse 25, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, right? Everybody's there. And show them the fruit of the land. Wow, awesome. This is, this, can you believe this? 
Verse 27, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So we spied out the land. The land is awesome. The land is, once we got a visual of what God has been talking about this whole time, wow, wow, this is amazing. Look, just check, check out this, these grapes and these pomegranates. But the, the fear of the people wins out. Verse 26, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. These are super big people. <laughs> These are, they describe them as giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So they did their homework. They know the layout of the land. They know who lives where. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, quieted the people. Everyone's like, boo, I don't care about grapes. Ah, forget, forget the land. Scary people, swords, nah, nah, I'm out. So Caleb steps in, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Let's do it. He sees the promise as bigger than the people. He sees the promise as bigger than the, than the problem. But verse 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Notice Caleb didn't say who's stronger. He just said, we have an ability to do it. They see the ability as just themselves, and they say, we can't do it. Verse 32, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. Not a bad report of the people. The land is not good now. The land that they had spied out saying, check it, not the people, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. You might be like, I thought Genesis 6 said the Nephilim are dead. I think he's using it as a, as a, um, like a metaphor, an example. These people are like the Nephilim of old, these giant people that we can't fight them. They're too, they're too big. They're too strong. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. We just seemed like insects running around compared to these well-fortified, well-armed, well-trained giants in the land. And notice, as they compare the land with the problem, the promise with the people, they're so scared of the people, they diss the land. The land devours. What do you mean the land devours? Yeah, the land the land is bad. We're giving you a bad report on the land. Boo land, right? Why boo land when there's those grapes? Because we can't do it. That's why. Too problematic. Forget the mission. Let's get out of here. And so then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Why are they weeping? Man, I really wanted those grapes. This stinks. Verse 2, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Here we go again. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now what happens when we are called by God to press forward and do the things that he commands us to do, but it's too scary to do. We tend to not remain indifferent. We tend to go in the opposite direction. There really isn't a place to just kind of hang out and remain in the middle. 
you follow God's leadership or reject his leadership and choose a different leader, yourself, someone else. But the negativity spreads. Notice the whole camp is not with Caleb and Joshua on this. They didn't see the giants. What they see is the grapes, but they're hearing this report, and they're hearing that 10 of the spies are saying, this is not possible. They're going to kill our kids. They're going to kill our women. Don't you love your wife? Don't you love your kids? Don't you dare follow God on this mission. And so they literally say, man, I would rather go back to Egypt or die here in this wilderness. Now think, we, we're not in that situation, so we can kind of you know, take a step back and look at it and be like, is that really logical? If you're going to die anyway, die fighting, man. If you're going to die anyway, die with someone in front of you who split open the Red Sea, who defeated all of Egypt's armies, who rains bread in the morning every time you open your tent, there's food right there magically, who brought quail when you needed meat, who's defeated people in front of you already. Let's, let's at least take a chance, if we're going to die anyway, let's take a chance that we could maybe win and get this land rather than for sure dying in the wilderness and having this great God who's been leading us against us now. Like if you're just going to take your chance on one of those two options, die attacking or die retreating, wouldn't it seem more logical to just, let's die in, in the fight? Well, it's not logical. It's rebellion. And rebellion doesn't use logic of faith. It only uses the logic of strength matching strength. What am I able to do? I can't do that, so I'm not doing it. And so faith being the missing ingredient causes them to rebel in a way that goes in the reverse direction, and they would rather say, I'll die retreating, then I'll die moving forward. And sadly, some people get stuck in that. They start out as Christians. They start out excited about the gospel. They start out excited about the things about Christianity, the things that they love Jesus. They think they do. And then they realize, wait, bear a cross? Wait, deny myself? Wait, do things that make me uncomfortable? Wait, do things that sound scary? And we'd rather die in this life retreating than advancing. Are you stuck? Why are you stuck? Why haven't you advanced? Why haven't you progressed in your own Christian faith? I think if we take the cue from this, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid to do what God calls us to do. And we're not called to attack literal giants. We're called to do pretty basic things, but they scare us enough that we would rather die retreating in this life than advancing and moving forward. Well, that doesn't please the Lord he moves us forward, and starting in verse 5, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. Before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, they realize how weighty this rebellion is. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, these are the two spies who are like, let's do it, man, let's go. Who are among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. This is like mourning. They're in pain that... This rebellion is happening, and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land, right? It's not bad. God's promises are good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. 
Well, the congregation doesn't like that. Verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Stop telling truth. Shut up. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. To this point, God has been quiet, kind of sitting back like a dad just listening to his kids argue and is like, at what point do I jump in here and like settle this thing, right? God is quiet to this point. Moses and Aaron are on their face on the floor. Joshua and Caleb are tearing their clothes. They're trying their best to reason with the people. And notice that the reasoning is not, the giants aren't really that tall. If you really measure it, they wear heels. You know what I'm saying? You know, no, they're like, yeah, they are giants. Yes, they are well fortified. They do have big cities. They are impossible for us to conquer. But what, are they ch- what is the charge? The charge is trust that the Lord will do it. Not you and me. We didn't split the Red Sea. We didn't defeat the Egyptian magicians, right? We don't get manna. It comes to us. God is our daily bread. We don't do it. So all we have to do is go in there and recognize that it's not the people against us. It's the people against the promise maker. And if the promiser said, I promise you will have this land, what are we even debating? We're going to have the grapes and the pomegranates and the land, and we're going to live by the sea because God said he's going to do it, not because he said we should do it. And when we view life as living by our own strength, when our little libraries at home, the shelves are filled with do-it-yourself, best life now, wash your face, you, 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 you'll keep convincing yourself that you have the power to do it, you'll recognize you don't have the power to do it, and you'll always retreat. And you'll live this life dying in that retreat. You will not advance. If God is not your shepherd, your leader, the one conquering going forward, when you constantly compare your problems and the scary things that God is asking you to do with your ability, you'll lose. You'll give into fear. The missing ingredient is faith, right? Courage, real courage, comes from faith that God is going to do it. Real courage is not faith that you can do it. That's a false courage. It's not real. So their argument is, why don't we trust God to do it? They're not listening, and they just want to kill anybody that has anything to say about this promise or this promise maker, promise keeper. I don't want to hear it. It's too scary. I would rather die retreating. The Lord said to Moses in verse 11, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I'm done with these people. And I will make of you, Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. Remember last time we talked about how Moses is a super humble guy? Well, they should be thankful for that. Because God is like, I'm going to delete them. I'm going to start over with you. Doesn't that break his promise to Abraham? Not really, because Moses is from Abraham. So I don't need (laughs) y'all. I could just start over with Moses and still keep my Genesis promises. There's an opportunity for Moses to be like, all right, cool. I'm sick of these people anyway, which we already saw him admit. Listen to Moses' response. I mean, it blows me away every time I read it. He's not like, nah, who am I? Which, that would be a good response. He's like, no, who are you? You need to be a God who does what he says he's going to do. And don't let this rebellious people derail what you said you're going to do, because it would be more glorious for you. It would be more fame for you if even with rebellious people, even with scaredy-cat cowards, you can still do what you said you're going to do. Wouldn't that be more worshipful? Wouldn't that make you more famous, more renowned? And God's like, good man. 
Moses says to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of the land, they have heard that you, O Lord, see how he doesn't make it about Israel. You, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, like wipe them out as all one person, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, and he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You want to know how to pray powerful prayers? Pray God's promises back to him. Take scripture, what he said, and pray it back to him. Prayer is not, um, blank, clear my mind. It's taking what God has said and praying it back to God. You said this. You said this. I want to see it in my life. This is exactly what Moses is doing. You said that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but that you will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And what we learn from this is that for people to continue on this journey, even though we get scared, even though we're fearful, and sometimes would prefer the wilderness to the promise, we need an intercessor, a mediator that steps in and goes, God, don't give up on this person. This person doesn't have the goods to make it, but you can do it in them. And Moses here is prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. And it's for the same reasoning. When you read John 17, and Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and Jesus prefaces and fronts that prayer for his disciples, I pray for my disciples throughout the world that you would unite them. Before he does that, he's like, God, do this for your glory, for your name. Don't let your people down. So if you're in here and you're like, man, I am a retreat type of person. I am scared. I know, join the club. But we have a Savior who intercedes for us and asks God to do in us what's necessary to press ahead and to press forward in this life. Thank God for the prayerful ministry of Jesus Christ who right now is interceding for the saints. Well, verse 20, God says, okay, sort of. (laughs) He says, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. So he's not going to kill them. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by, by the way to the Red Sea. So what God says is, Moses, I'm going to honor your request and not kill them, but I'm also going to honor their request and let them die in the desert like they want to. Because God's not going to force you to follow him. If you stay stuck in your fear, you don't make it. And so God is chasing his own glory, but God can be glorified by rescuing. He can also be glorified by demonstrating that he's not a cheap God that gets taken advantage of. People aren't going to make it into the land if they're like, have no high view of what he's able to do. And what's going to happen there is people get into the land because they thought they are the ones that conquered the giants. And in the land, who are they going to celebrate? 
Who are they going to worship? Who are they going to appreciate? Themselves, their might, their armor. See? In, in, in heaven, we worship the lamb not because we made it and we did so well. We worship the lamb because it weren't for him. We never would have made it. And so that's the type of person that makes it to the end. The type of person, ironically, that realizes I'm not a wilderness survivor. I can't make it all the way. I need to lean on God. I need the intercession of Jesus Christ. I need a mediator. I need someone to go before me and help me. And those who are self-sufficient do not make it. And therefore, the, the books, the literature, the pastors, the churches that promote a pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps Christianity is not a Christianity. They die retreating. What's the answer? The answer is faith. The answer is trust. The answer is to know that God is the one that takes us all the way. God is the one that we lean on as we go through. So when you feel like you failed, you get back up, you go on your face, you ask God to glorify himself by forgiving you and assuring you that he will take you through to the end. He resents that they grumble against him in verse 27 because it's wicked that they grumble against him. He's heard their grumblings. And he tells them that their dead bodies are going to fall in the wilderness and he's going to take their children and bring them into the land. So now this entire operation is put on hold and they're going to die in their retreat. Verse 33. And then Moses sent out, uh, and the men that Moses sent out, this is verse 36, the men that Moses sent to spy out the land returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. So those immediate rebellious spies died immediately. Everybody else is just going to kind of wait out their lives and die in the desert. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Why? Because they're so awesome? Because they're so courageous? No, because they're men of faith. And that's the difference. Now the episode would end here, and I'm going to do this really quickly. There's one more paragraph, you'll notice, in verse 14. And here's the other side of the trap. You think of uh, walking with the Lord, following the Lord as this road. You can fall off on this side, and if you veer to avoid this side too far, you fall off on this side. And what happens here, strangely, is a people that still don't get it. They see the, the, the ten spies die. They see God promise, you're not going to enter the land. You're not going to eat these grapes. You're not going to enjoy these pomegranates. You're not going to live on that beach front where the Canaanites currently live. You're not going to get that. Your kids are going to get that now. So I'm just going to watch my watch and sit, let you sit here. And when you die, then I'll take your kids in. And they're like, whoa, whoa, what a punishment. This is crazy. Forget it. We'll attack. And Moses is like, no. No, don't, don't attack. You don't have the ark. You don't have the priest. You don't have God with you. No, no, no. We got it this time. We're going to do it. We've got it. We can do this. No, man, you can't do it, right? It's the same problem, just on the opposite side of the road. Check it out in verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, this isn't like several months later, right? It's an immediate response. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned great, greatly. There, man, yeah, first they're crybabies because they're scared. Now they're crying because they're punished. In verse 40, And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are! Never mind! Let's hit reset on this whole rebellion thing, and let's, let's start over. We're here. We will go up to the place. We, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? when that will not succeed. In other words, why are you now disobeying on the other side? of the? Why are you falling on the opposite ditch now? Going ahead of God, without God. 
You're still being self-sufficient. Do not go up, verse 42. Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. That is the point. The Lord has to do it. He's not with you. Lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. They are stronger than you. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down, and lo and behold, who could have guessed it, defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So oftentimes we'll come into a service like this and we're like, oh yeah, I, I realize I have been kind of sort of a checked out Christian. I haven't really been pursuing. I haven't really been following God. You know what? I am going to do it now. I'm going to be a Bible study leader. I'm going to start memorizing five verses a day. I might go check out how much it costs to go get an MDiv at Trinity. I might see what, it's, what it would be like to get ordained. I'm going to be a pastor. Maybe I'll be a missionary. Who's the most unreached people? Spin the globe, put my finger. Maybe God is calling me there. You're just so jacked, but it's still you. And so the problem is the same, even though the effect is different. Here, their problem was, oh, me do it? Oh, that's too scary. And then they see like, oh, wait. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna miss out on the promise if I live like that. Okay, I'll live like this. Yeah, me do it. I don't know why I sound like a caveman, but maybe because it's a Neanderthal way of thinking. Me do. Yes, me power. Right? I can do it. I can take it. No, man, you can't do it. So where are you supposed to be? You're supposed to be in this place where God gives you commands, and even though it's scary, you do it not because you think you're able to do it, but you do it because you're trusting that God doesn't give commands for which he doesn't also promise success if you lean on him for it. Three quick examples. I'm thinking, okay, New Testament, what are our commands? Our commands aren't to attack giants, but we are in this wilderness journey, and God does help us understand what it looks like to be a Christian who pushes ahead and goes forward. A couple quick examples would be uh, James 5.16. Confess sins to one another. Is that a giant? We act like it. Why? Because we're scared to confess sins to one another. We would prefer to get together, have our little meals, and just talk about sports, but not sit there and be like, I messed up this week. Why? Because it makes me look like a jerk. It makes me look like a lesser of a Christian. I'm, I'm afraid that people are going to judge me. I'm afraid that maybe I won't, be able, I won't be seen the same way by these people again. I'm afraid that people are going to gossip about me after small group. I'm afraid that next week I won't be able to say that I got better. What if I fail again? Now I'm just going to look like a a, a persistent sinner and I just would rather keep it secret because I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. The problem is God commands it. James 5.16, it's a command. So it's not an option. Here's Christians, you could do it. Confess, that's like for like really weak Christians or Christians that you know, don't have anything better to do. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Do we do that? Is confession of sin a regular rhythm of your life? Some of us have a Catholic background. We're like, the confession booth, that's so dumb. Priests, we're all priests. Yeah, we're all priests. Not having a confession booth doesn't mean we don't believe in confession. It means we don't believe that confession is just with a booth. It's with each other. And if we, don't, if we only show up to hang out with each other when it's a restaurant or games are involved... We're retreating. We're retreating from a clear command, and we're retreating because we're afraid. What happens, though, is when we're afraid of the challenge, we start dissing the promise. 
And think about the promises attached in James 5.16. Healing. Healing. And we could talk about, that's another sermon. What, what kind of healing? What's, what's he mean by healing? But he's talking about healing as a result of confession. Confession is scary, so what do we do? Well, healing, healing is not for today. Healing, who knows what healing means. Ah, healing. I met a healer once. He was a fake. We make all these excuses, so now we don't have to confess. And the reason why is not a scriptural argument. It's because we're scared. I think Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Wow, that's exhausting. Ugh, how long is that phone call going to be? How often am I going to have to meet with this person to bear this trespass? They're the idiot that did it. Why'd they even do that? Ugh, that's just going to take so much time, right? And so we're scared of the commitment. We're scared of the problem. We're scared of going down that road. We might even be scared, if you read that passage, that we might even fall into the same thing. Notice Paul doesn't say, but if you're worried that you might fall into the same trap, then don't bear each other's burden. No, he's like, be careful to not fall into the same trap. But you still need a barrier. That's your brother. That's your sister. And we don't get to just cancel them. We don't do cancel culture in the church. Where, oh, they sinned. They're out. Done. No, you've got to come alongside them and like, hey, I used to wrestle with that. Can I help? Yes, that's exhausting. And yes, that can be scary and daunting. But that's the job. As brothers and sisters, that's our role. One last example, Matthew 28, 19. I'm trying to think of verses that we just know of, right? God commands us to go and make disciples. Well, that's a scary, daunting task. How do I bring up the gospel? What if they defriend me? What if they, what if they, they don't want to, every time I come into work, they're going to give me weird looks because I brought up this Christian thing. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's scary. No matter how much seminary education you get or how many apologetics debate videos you watch, it's still scary. <laughs> I promise you that. But it's still a command. It's still a charge. We, we, we move through this wilderness, not by killing giants, but by proclaiming the gospel to lost souls that are still stuck in Egypt, so to speak. And we're like, come on out in the wilderness, man. There's this promised land ahead of us. We're supposed to recruit people to this march and to this journey. But we disobey that sometimes just because we're scared to have a conversation. We're scared to bring it up. We're scared about the flack that we'll get for being a Christian. And because we're scared, we downsize or distort the command. Well, that command is for uh, uh, pastors. That command is for evangelists. No, it's for disciples. And so as you move through the New Testament, as you move through the Bible, and you see like, wow, God requires of me. This is really hard. Yes, it's called barrier cross. It's a difficult journey. But we don't do it on our own strength. We do it by faith. As we close in this final song, my hope and my prayer is that as we sing, asking God to be our vision, and by that we don't mean, may we please have a vision tonight, you know, while I'm sleepwalking or something like that. But we're asking God to be the center target of our lives, that he would be ahead of us, be our focus, as opposed to the world or our own strengths. Why? Because when we place our faith that God is the one that's going to get us there, he'll get us there. Let's pray. Fathers, the worship team comes back up and we uh, prepare our hearts to close in a song. We